Hello, and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Our guest is Michael Lofton, the proprietor of the podcast Reason and Theology. And one of the things that Michael is well known for is the conversation, the dialogue, the discussion that goes on between uh, the Eastern and the Western uh, lungs of the church, if I, I could borrow that from uh, Pope John Paul II. Uh, and uh, at the heart of all this, uh, I don't know, maybe I actually, I'll actually have to ask Michael if, if if that's the right to say at the heart of all of this, but certainly somewhere in the mix of the struggles uh, and the discussions and the debates, I suppose you might say, between East and West is that little filioque. And so uh, Michael is here to help us with that. Michael Lofton, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me back on, Cy. Well, let me start there. Is it the heart of everything, this filioque, or is that is that exaggeration to say it like that? Depends on who you ask and when, in what time period. Okay. So. okay. All <laughs> right. Here, here's the reason why. That's such I a mean, Jimmy Aiken often... answer. I don't have a time machine, <laughs> uh, Michael. <laughs> well, the, the reason for that, though, is because originally, whenever we have um, the schism. And I, I know some people date it to 1054. That's not necessarily accurate, but there were some tensions around the time of 1054. And believe it or not, it wasn't the papacy and it wasn't really the filioque that was the main issue at that time for the tension between East and West. It was the question of azymes, leaven and unleavened bread. That's what it was. Do we use unleavened bread or, or leavened bread in the Eucharist? Wow. The East says it's leavened. The West say, well, it's okay to use unleavened as well. And so that was the main reason. Now, fast forward a little bit to the Council of Florence in the 1400s. By that time, the big issue is the filioque, and that's at the forefront. Oh, so okay. Yeah, so it does now, depend on, on... It, it does. And then fast forward even more to, to, to the present. Most people will tell you the issue of the filioque is not a main barrier between East and West. Mm -hmm. That's true to an extent, um, depending on what the person's view is on the filioque. So we have to dig a little deeper there. So yeah, it really just depends on the time period. Well, what would people say is the big issue today? Uh, the papacy. Ah, okay. All and, right. And, and namely the question of papal supremacy, universal and immediate jurisdiction, um, and papal infallibility. I think if we could work through that, those two differences right there, mm -hmm. everything else is settled. And to be honest, papal infallibility is actually subsumed underneath papal supremacy. Because if the Pope has supremacy and is able to bind the consciences of the universal church, papal infallibility necessarily follows from that. I so it you. boils down to papal supremacy. So, but, uh, but the, the, now I, we're going to get into what the word filioque means, because I would like mm -hmm. to... Um, I would like a person to be able to listen to this podcast and get the lay of the land, understand what, sure. the, what the issues are and, and who the players are and why each is on the side that, that, that they are on. So we'll, we'll get to all that, but the, I just want to resolve this. So you, you say it depends on what time period, and we have the leavened or unleavened bread, we have the filioque, today we have papal supremacy. It's not because issues are getting resolved. Like these, these other, the filioque and the bread question are still there. Is that correct or am I mistaken on that? They're there, but they're so minor. And some have said that they're resolved, oh, just okay. depending on who you ask. So some in the East will say, look, this issue of leaven and unleaven, this was just silly. That's not a big deal. That's resolved. 
whereas others might say otherwise. Same for the filioque. I mean, look at 1848, you have four patriarchs signing off on a letter condemning it as heresy. That is the filioque. And here we are, you know, 100 and and maybe 40 years later, I forget the exact year of the document that it was released, but roughly over 100 years later, and now you have Eastern Orthodox saying, well, this issue with the filioque, it boils down to a matter of terminology. Oh. So some will say that. Others will stick to the uh, older version and say, no, it's still heresy, and it's not an issue just of terminology. So there, there isn't just one unified view in the East on this particular perspective. Um, when you're married, you got to be careful about spending too much time apart because new problems will arise. Is that what's happening mm -hmm. between the the East and the West? Is that 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 there is? If you have a a, a division over bread, and then mm -hmm. it, you, you, the longer you stay apart, the more you're there's gonna problems are gonna develop because you're living two separate lives. Do you do you think that's an, a fair analogy, or is that a bad analogy? I think it's fair, and but I do want to say some of these other concerns, such as filioque and papacy, um, though they may not have been at the forefront initially, they were still there, you know, historically as far as tensions. I mean, we have tensions between East and West on the question of the filioque dating pretty early. Same for the papacy. We have some tensions there as well. But okay. again, it wasn't just those two things weren't really seen as the major impetus behind the schism. Um, whereas now they, it, you know, things have kind of flip-flopped and they are seen and asimes and beards and stuff like that are just seen as uh, accidental and irrelevant. Because believe it or not, the question of whether or not priests can have beards was was an issue for some I, I I was gonna say you just slipped beards in there like I wasn't gonna I throw notice. the beards in there. Well, yeah, <laughs> purgatory beards and asymes. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I guess we'll have to do a separate show on the beards. But uh, have yeah. we resolved that? I I, I am somewhat concerned about that because you know. Interestingly enough, Dr. Sachinsky, who's an Eastern Orthodox scholar, he's written monumental book on the papacy, another one on uh, the filioque, and he just figured uh, finished one on. Uh, purgatory, asymes, and beards. So I have not had the chance to read it yet, but I, I assume that for him, he doesn't think that the beards is a deal breaker. So <laughs> that would, just knowing Dr. Sachinsky. I got to so. say that's disheartening if beards is a deal breaker. I, 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 <laughs> I, maybe that's because I'm a, a neophyte uh, in this regard, but that, I'm, I mean... <laughs> beard shouldn't be a deal breaker, but okay. So, but it wouldn't matter for us because we both have beards, right? And well, neither of us is a priest either. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, true. <laughs> so yeah, right. We we do both have beards. Uh, sure. So okay. So uh, let's get down to the filioque then. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm leaving God. The so and then the, the okay. So I, I was going to do the the passage from mm -hmm. the um, mm -hmm. from, but I but I won't. I'll let you do that if you want. But the filioque becomes an issue. Because what 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 is it and and how did it become an issue? Yeah, so let let's start with the what is it first. Um, so yeah, you're right to point out to the Nicene Creed that part where we speak about the Holy Spirit, um, and we say who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. um, the words there and the Son in Latin would be filioque, um, and that is admittedly something that we added to the creed. Um, 
and the East did not have that tradition of adding that clause. So it did cause some tension whenever they started to see the West with that additional clause in the creed. Um, but what is it? What do we mean by and the Son? might be helpful to just briefly speak about the Trinity um, to make sense of it. We say that, first of all, God is one, right? I mean, there's only one God. We don't believe in three gods, five gods, a million gods. There's only one God. This goes back straight to the Old Testament, the Shema that every good Jew would recite every day from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we, we start with the fact that God is one. But then when we speak of God being as one, we can refer to some distinctions, if you will, within God. Not, not divisions, but some distinctions. So, for example, we say that the Father is one person of the Holy Trinity, and He is without origin. He does not have His origin in anyone else. The Father is without origin, unbegotten. Whereas we say the Son, the eternal Logos, we say He has His origin in the Father, he is begotten. Now, when we say origin here, we're not speaking in time, right? Mm -hmm. He's not a created being. Jesus is not a creature. Uh, this is an eternal origin, an eternal procession, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so he has his origin in the Father. Now, we can speak of the Holy Spirit as also having his origin in the Father. But what distinguishes Him, the Holy Spirit, from the Son if both of them have their origin in the Father? What, what differentiates them? What makes them distinct? We say that the Holy Spirit has His origin or source in the Father um, immediately, but we can also speak of a mediation through the Son. So we might say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. Again, He has this immediate origin in the Father. He's the ultimate source of his, um, of his nature. However, we can say that there's also a mediatory role through the Son. And so we speak of one spiration, one principle from the Father and the Son. I know it, it's, it's very, very confusing, but it's, number one, it's testified to in Scripture. Number two, it's testified to in the Church Fathers. And also, it, it is a it's testified to in reason, because if we can't distinguish the, the Son from the Holy Spirit, they would seem to be conflated as one person. Mm -hmm. But this allows us to distinguish between the Son and the Holy Spirit. Does that help to answer the question? I, I can go into more detail if it doesn't. Um, okay, so I, I do I do notice one linguistic thing that I would like clarified with you, because okay. I, 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 it seemed to make sense. In in mm -hmm. this way, it seemed to make sense that it it it's it seems reasonable what you say. Not that that like uh, reason would have led me to this <laughs> on mm -hmm. my own. Sure, you know? of course. But that it seems of reasonable course. what you say. But the one mm -hmm. linguistic thing I would like to clarify is you say uh, uh, originates from the Father or in the Father through the Son, and that's not what the Catholic uh -huh. Church says in the Filioque. It says it, you, you referred to the fact that the Catholic Church says and the Son. Yes. Yeah. So the Catechism refers to the fact that when we say from the Father and the Son, that's equivalent to saying in the Eastern tradition from the Father through the Son. Oh, okay. So, so those are analogous, or I'm sorry, those are those are on the same level. They they mean the same thing when properly understood. Um, I do want to maybe unpack that here in a moment, but let me maybe give you an illustration. Let's let's put it like this. We can speak of the the sun 
We can then speak of the rays of light that come from the sun and then the light itself, the radiance from the ray. And so we see the Father as the Son, uh, the eternal Logos, the Word, uh, the begotten Son as the ray, and then the Holy Spirit as the light, the radiance from that ray. And we can say the radiance has its ultimate source in the sun, sure. but it's mediated through that ray of light, if you will. I gotcha. That's just an analogy. Obviously, that there's some temporality in that analogy, and we don't believe that this happened in time. We believe that this is something eternal. But, it's, but it is a decent way to give us an analogy to this. Uh, but I do want to say this. When we speak of through the sun, when we use the term through the sun, it is the same thing as saying um, from the Father and the Son, if we mean that this is something that happened from all eternity. Where there's some confusion is, there are some in the Eastern tradition who will say, yes, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, but only in time. Not in God himself eternally, but only in time, insofar as God is working with his creation and the mission of salvation and the way the events of uh, creation and salvation unfold. We have maybe a priority with the Father and then the Son and then the Holy Spirit in time. They will speak of through the Son in that way. Whereas we as Catholics are saying, well, yeah, that's true, but that's a reflection of something that's already true about God himself within God. There's this eternal flowing forth of the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son. Um, so that's a distinction between what we would call with the imminent trinity within God yes. and the economic trinity within time. Very interesting. Okay, so... Um I do want to clarify one other historical point. You said that the mm -hmm. the the Nicene Creed everyone accepts, but that the mm -hmm. the West added the Filioque yeah. and the East is so. In just historically, how did that happen? That the Filioque yeah. got added without uh, consulting, <laughs> you know, somebody sure, in the East, sure. like calling somebody up. And I mean, you didn't call people up, but yeah, you know, like yeah. how did that happen? in a way that it it just took root in the West, but the East, mm -hmm. it did not. Fascinating uh, question, yeah. Um, so, I mean, originally you have the Nicene Creed with the Council of Nicaea. It's it's a little bit of a different version than the one that it, all of us recite today, East and West. Um, the Nicene Creed that we use really comes from not only Nicaea, but also Constantinople I. And, you know, a few centuries after that, um, there was a canon in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 where we said, okay, look, the creed is locked. We're, we're not to come up with a different creed. We're to use this creed and we're not to start using other liturgical creeds. And so from that, some were under the impression that you just couldn't add anything to the creed sure. because of what Chalcedon was saying. And here we have we start to have Western Christians we're starting to add this clause into the creed. And one of the reasons why is we were dealing with Arian heretics. Way after the Council of Nicaea, Arianism is still around, and we're dealing with it specifically in the territory of like Spain. And some of the, some of the Spanish bishops added the clause and the son, the filioque, to the creed to support the deity of Jesus. 
Because think of this, if if the uh, Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that strengthens the prominence of of Jesus because does, right. he yeah, he he is um, you know, a principle if you will of the Holy Spirit. So it was one of the ways in which we reinforced the deity of the Son of Jesus against Arians who were denying the deity of Jesus. Well, we had this in the West. The East wasn't really combating this issue by this time. So they're they're dealing with other things. Yeah. So they did not necessarily have that need uh, to add that clause to the creed. Well, as centuries progressed, it became more and more prominent in the Western churches to have that added into the creed. So by the time of the end of the sixth century, you would have Orthodox scholars admitting that it's unanimous in the Western tradition at this point. Which is important because if you have the entire West teaching something during this era where the Orthodox are saying the West was Orthodox, well, that means it's not heresy. If the entire West has accepted the Filioque Clause, it can't be heresy. Um, Now, Rome for a long time resisted adding it to the creed. Rome had no problem with the theology of the Filioque. It was very clear. Yes, the theology is true. Absolutely. But it did resist adding it to the creed. And by the time of 1014, you do start to have Rome giving way to the recitation of the creed with the Filioque. And this just caused a lot of tremors with the East because they're saying, look, the Filioque, it's adding to the creed. The creed is locked. You're not supposed to add anything to the creed. The Western church was saying, no. You're not supposed to come up with a different creed, but just adding this clause isn't changing the meaning of the creed. It's not giving a different creed or something like that. Um, So from our perspective, it was a perfectly legitimate addition to the creed, whereas the East wanted to say, no, the, the East needs to be consulted on this matter. And you guys agreed not to add anything to the creed especially at the Fourth Council of Constantinople, 879. You have a council that met here in Constantinople between East and West. We don't consider it um, ecumenical, but some Eastern Orthodox consider it the Eighth Ecumenical Council. And in this council, there is a clause there that refers to not adding anything to the creed, And they'll say, you see right there, you guys agreed in 879 not to add anything to the creed. And here you go in 1014, you're still adding the filioque to the creed. What's going on? Well, if you actually look at the Council of 879, what we say there is that we would not add anything to the creed unless Satan stirs up some kind of heresy that needs to be responded to. And guess what? And guess that's exactly what happened. Spanish oh. Arianism was stirred up, and so we added the Filioque Clause to the creed because Satan stirred off a heresy. And so, again, we say that it's consistent with everything we've signed off on. Well, let me ask you this then. Today, with all the the philosophical and theological reflection that has gone on and the conversation between Orthodox and Catholics, mm-hmm. do the— do, is there a theological objection in Catholicism to leaving the filioque out? And is there does the, is there a theological objection in orthodoxy to letting other people use it, even if we don't use it? Do you see what mm. I mean? Is there a theological mm-hmm. reason why you can't just accommodate one another on this mm-hmm. point? 
Yeah, and so you know what Rome has actually said for the Eastern churches that we don't have to have it in the creed. So, for example, in um, my church, we don't recite it in the creed, but we accept the theology of the filioque. That's what I'm getting. So you, at. Yeah. you have to. Yeah. So yeah, you have to accept the theology. You can't say, "Oh well, we reject the theology." No, that's out of bounds. But Rome doesn't require us to recite it in the creed, and certainly would not require the Eastern Orthodox in in a reunified church to recite it in the creed because it wasn't something that they um, have in their tradition. So there's nothing wrong with us just continuing to recite the creed according to our own tradition, as long as we recognize the orthodoxy of it. Um, but but it, I do think that, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. It, just, it was just seeming to me that from the orthodox perspective, and one can see their perspective, it, it seems fairly clear. It does seem to be more of a process objection than a theology objection, at least the way you described it. So I'm wondering if the East sees it that way, that this is a process objection where this was not done uh, correctly and we have a you know ca counselor teaching that we interpret to mean you can't mess around with this creed, that, that a process objection seems much easier to just let go than, an, than a theological objection. Certainly, if that's all that it is. Now, historically, yeah. historically for the East, it's been twofold. Number one, you added this to the creed without the East consent. And then number two, we believe the theology, the theology behind it is deficient or wow. heretical. Now, again, we've made a lot of improvements in, in the last few decades to where some Orthodox are on board with the theology of it not being heretical. They might just say it's a theological opinion, but it's within the bounds of Orthodoxy. Whereas there's some other diehard Orthodox who would say, nope, it's still heresy. Heresy. And then all of the Orthodox are going to say, and you shouldn't have added it to the creed. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so we still have yeah. to get through. We're still working on the issue of, you know, is this heretical or not? I think I, the issue of not adding it to the creed is 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 fine. But you know what? There are some Orthodox who would still say, well, even if you're saying we in the East don't have to add it to the creed, that's still not good enough because you guys are using it in your creed and your Latin church, and you shouldn't be adding that to the creed. Um, mm -hmm. So some are still going to have a problem with Rome using it in the creed yeah. uh, in the Western churches. Okay. Okay. So that's where we, that's where we are today. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but you do give the sense that it has improved, that it, it's not, we're not just where we were in 1848. Right. Yeah, it's it's certainly improved. You know, the clergy, there, there's a lot more clergy who are on board with it. Patriarch of Constantinople seems a lot more open to this than um, in history um, when, it, when it comes to not saying that this is heretical. And you have the monumental Metropolitan Callistus Ware who uh, looked into this issue for years and finally came to the conclusion that this is an issue of uh, a language problem and is not a theological barrier between us. So you do have plenty of prominent Orthodox who have come out and said, yeah, this isn't something that should divide us. You also do have some agreements between Orthodox um, and Catholic bishops. In North America, there's a document written by the bishops of North America and the Eastern Orthodox in America. Uh, where we agree that neither side should be accusing the other of heresy in the question of the filioque. 
Oh, okay. So there, there's still more work to be done, but there is that kind of agreement. But then you got plenty of Orthodox who just say, no, those bishops are traitors, and it is still heresy. So you'll always have the diehards. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, w- w- when you think about the, the struggles over liturgy in the, in the Latin Rite Church, that, it's, that it seems to me that one might come to the theological conclusion in the bishop's office that, you know, both the, the new... Um, Mass, the order of the mass in 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 the vernacular and the old older in Latin are fine, but that doesn't mean people are going to accept it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what if what if you had a situation where the Orthodox bishops all in all said this is fine, let's move on uh, from this? That doesn't mean that Orthodox people are going to accept that. Exactly, and that's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to have reunion. Because if you recall, we when we had several reunion councils, Lyons and also the Council of Florence, we've had these reunion councils where, on paper, we're reunited. It's taken home to the laity, to the common Orthodox, and they reject it. Mm-hmm. And so the signatures of the bishops turned out to be nothing because the the people feet on the ground rejected it. So it, it couldn't really digest into everyday life. And so this is the reason why the Council of Florence failed. The, you know, all yeah. of the bishops except one signed off on it and they bring it home and the laity don't accept it. Um, they had a lot of biases against the Catholic Church and so they did not accept it and it failed. And I think that that is going to continue to be the case until there is a significant change on the local ground level. Um, You know, we we say that the schism happened from the local level on up and it found its way into the ranks, into the bishops. That's going to have to be how we reverse the schism. It's going to have to happen on the local level first. You're going to have to have enough people on board on the local level before the bishops can really say, hey, we're in communion with one another. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be another Florence. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you can, re- yeah, uh, resolving a theological issue is not the same as healing a, a division in the church. That, right. Those are two right. different things. Uh, right. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have liturgy wars. <laughs> I mean, we, that, we, that'd, be, that'd be over. Uh, to ahead. be honest, I, I think the Patriarch of Constantinople would sign off on a, a reunion right now if he knew that the average Orthodox would back him up and that the other churches would back him up. But he knows that there would be plenty of Orthodox who would not back him up, so he doesn't agree yet to a reunion. Right, and what's the point of a reunion that shatters Orthodoxy? We don't want a shattered Orthodoxy. We'd... It, exactly. Exactly. It would be no different than um, the Eastern Catholic churches that have come into communion with Rome historically already. I mean, if you have a group who says, okay, well, we're coming back together, there's still going to be plenty of Orthodox who say, we're not on board, and we're just going to replace you and create more bishops and replace uh, your see with somebody who is Orthodox. And and it's just going to be the same as whenever you have an Eastern uh, church entering into union with Rome. Uh, known as Eastern Catholicism. It's, it's just going to be no different than that. You're always going to have a group of people on the Eastern Orthodox side who are not on board and are going to continue a schism unless we can get them on board too. Yeah, okay. And and that's in the, the hands of the Holy Spirit. He, exactly. He's got ways of, of doing those things and we'll do it in his uh, time. But uh, certainly uh, we're called to cooperate in that and to pray for that. Uh, what else? Anything else I should know about the filioque? I feel like I've got a, a grasp of it, but what else should I, I know about the 
Filioque and the and this um what I thought maybe was very was decisive, but I didn't know about the bread and about purgatory and about beards mm. and about um I did know about the the supremacy of, of the, the the pope, the that the 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 controversy, mm-hmm. the dispute over that. Uh but what about the Filioque? Mm-hmm. Have I have I gotten the picture from you? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much more to say here. But what I will say is this, is that I think the Orthodox have backed themselves into a corner and put themselves in quite the predicament because they have historically said that this is heresy. And yet, and yet the West very clearly maintained the filioque for a long period of time while the East was in communion with a filioquist West which means the East was in communion with heretics if this is heresy. That's a problem for orthodoxy because that would then mean that they were in communion with heretics. And that would also mean that the Orthodox West, the the West that they're claiming is Orthodox, was in fact in heresy for a long period of time, embracing the filioque. That's a very serious problem whenever they've gone to the extent of calling this heresy in 1848. Uh, um, uh, just one other thing then, uh, do you think that the, the, the way forward is, is, uh, to, to have more conversations about the papacy, that as far as dialogue goes, yes. which to, to focus our energies, the place to end, to focus them would be on the, the role of the papacy. I do, because if, if the papacy, if we can come to an agreement on that, the filioque follows. Yeah. It, it just follows because, again, from papal supremacy follows papal infallibility. And if Rome has already accepted the orthodoxy of the filioque for as long as it has, then we can know it's orthodox. So in other words, if we solve the papacy issue, everything else is solved. But we could fix the filioque issue and still have a papacy issue. Yeah, right. And so that's, that's really, yeah. Yeah, that's divisive on lots of levels because it's practically divisive as well. It's not just theologically divisive, it's practically divisive because it has an, a, a question of, well, who's who's got authority to say what? Exactly. And, and we would say the Pope has the authority to determine the orthodoxy. He also has the authority to add to the creed. We, we would still defend that he has that authority. The question is, should he? Right? Should yeah. he add something to the creed without the consent of the East? Probably not. Can he? Yes. Should he? No. Yeah, I think I, I think your dog agrees with that. He did not like it <laughs> when you yeah. suggested that the Pope, should the Pope do this. The, but yeah, I think he's barking at the mailman. <laughs> oh, good. All right, that's yeah. good. That's a good dog. Uh, well, uh, Michael, I really appreciate it. I I do appreciate that you you take the time because I think sometimes we can just assume, oh, this is the thing. It happened in 1054. It's the filioque, and we're still li- and and forget all these other uh, subtleties of it. So I appreciate mm-hmm. you taking the time to explain the subtleties to us. Glad to do it. It was an honor. Uh, Michael Lofton, you can find him at Reason and Theology. He's an associate apologist here at Catholic Answers. And um, did you see that? I got that. No. You affiliate. got it. I got it wrong. Affiliate. I did, uh, yeah. I did it again. You, you still got I was it. all it's, proud it's of myself. The same thing. It's I, the same thing. <laughs> I was all proud of myself for getting it right. This is my uh, This is my filioque. I can't get this right. I changed it unilaterally, and I can't go back now. The affiliate apologist here at Catholic Answers. And I want to thank you uh, for listening uh, to, to uh, Catholic Answers Focus as well. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always send us an email. Focus at Catholic.com is our email address, focus at Catholic.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so by going to givecatholic.com. It does cost a little bit of money to do this. 
And if you want to help support it, you go to givecatholic.com. And as always, wherever you get this podcast, if you would subscribe, if you would give us that five-star review, maybe a few nice words, that really helps to grow the podcast. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Michael Lofton has been our guest. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. Mm-hmm.